tonight on Arena. Jim Sheridan on his new documentary about Peter O'Toole and on the 14th of February, Love in Poetry and Romance in Opera. Five one double five one is the text. You can t- tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Peter O'Toole, Along the Sky Road to Aqaba, is a new documentary about legendary actor Peter O'Toole made by filmmaker Jim Sheridan. The film reflects on O'Toole's theatrical and film legacy, his self-belief, his alcoholism, his relationships with women, his belief in socialism and his selective embrace of his Irishness. While O'Toole's words uh, act as narrator of his own journey, Jim Sheridan further explores the story through interviews with O'Toole's family, especially his ex-wife, Shan Phillips, and artists, actors and directors who knew O'Toole well. Delighted that Jim's with us in studio this evening. Um, Before we speak to uh, Jim, let's listen to Peter O'Toole himself speaking about how he decided to become an actor. I mean, His Majesty was desperate for my services at one point and I had to nip into the Navy. I don't think he was too grateful. I was very perverse, I must admit. The Navy, lovely, thank you, very nice. Um, no, I was, I was, a, I couldn't do it. And I, I, I used to play civilian all the time, you know, referring to the funnels as chimneys. The two years in the Navy are a total blank. It's I've rejected it. I've hypnotised myself. I've amputated the Navy from my mind. But you see, this business about becoming an actor, as I say, I was, I was born a ham. One is. I mean, nothing else I could do. So I thought, well, the best thing to do is to um, go to a school for a while, because I still had a, this ghastly Irish Yorkshire accent I thought should be ironed out, so I thought I'd go to school. But which one? I hadn't the faintest idea. Went to Rada and became an actor. There you go. That's the whole story in, yeah. in, in 51 yeah. seconds, Peter O'Toole. Um, I suppose the big thing that jumps out from that, Jim Sheridan, is I had to get rid of that ghastly Irish Yorkshire and Yorkshire yeah. accent. Yeah, yeah. I'd say he had a Yorkshire accent and very little Irish at that mm. time. Uh, he was a character. He was very charismatic, you know. Um, I met him first in the 70s. I was working with Mary Keane on uh, Happy Days in the Peacock and we were taking it to Cork, the Everyman. And he came in to help her. Mm. He helped me, director. Uh, and you couldn't say no to O'Toole. Like, he was so bigger than the room, you know. Uh, wild and crazy as well, you know. And um, and I think he was a generous guy, you know. I went out once with... Uh, Donald McCann once five times to the races in Baltimore Pimlico I think it's Pimlico the track and McCann said to me you took your per diems and he took them off me and bet them and he owed me 1500 on the first day and by about the end of the week he owed me five grand and he kept saying "Uh, don't worry O'Toole's coming in and uh O'Toole came in and gave him the five grand and he paid me back. So the generosity was there in, in, in more ways than one. What really comes across mm-hmm. in, in the in the film though, and, and mm-hmm. you mentioned that he came in to give you the, the, yeah. the handout on Beckett and obviously mm-hmm. Mary Keane must have yeah. had some say in that yeah. as, as well. It, it's that he really was one of those actors who mixed theatre and film yeah. absolutely and totally. Yeah. How theatrical was he? 
he was very theatrical. Uh, like in comparison, I would say, to an actor like Daniel Day or even McCann, he was much bigger than the room, but he could dial it down, you know. Mm. Um, he, he was very smart, you know. Uh, one of the things I'll never forgive him for was telling Harris to only act in the close-ups. So he he told Harris, field, yeah. he said, the studio will always just stay wide on you, you know, so wait till they come in tight and then give it all. <laughs> it's like, they were mad. <laughs> but they were they had to protect themselves against the studio and, you know. But I saw Peter on a stage and he was spellbinding. So was Harris. Mm. It's funny because you, you, Brian Cox is part of this. Anthony mm. Hopkins is part of this. Yeah. Brian Blessed is in there. Um, uh, Derek Jacobi is mm-hmm. in there. Yeah, mm. and the, the list of like mm. huge names from yeah, British yeah, film and theatre yeah. in, in that particular period yeah. of time, I suppose the 60s, 70s, 80s, when they were yeah. all enormous stars. And they all just talk about they they came sometimes onto the set just to look at O'Toole to yeah. learn from him. Yeah, I think he was very charismatic and domineering, and you know, um, and we got all those because they all really respected him and loved him, you know, and looked up to him, and because Brian O'Flaherty pursued them, he was he a great producer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he did a lot of work on it, Brian, and uh, so the, yeah, they were. They all loved them, you know. They all were in awe of them. Mm. Um, there were some mad stories we left out, like uh, that, you know, just how crazy he was running naked around um, in, where is it, in Wales, that they all went to the school. Daniel Day went there as well. The Bristol Old Vic. Oh, yes, yeah. And he was with Brian Blessed and, you know, they're suddenly running around with no clothes on, you know. It's like, that's Although he did, they, they, there is a story in in the midst of it all. Uh, this is Brian Blessed. No, I don't know who tells yeah. the story about uh, where they went out on horseback one day, and and there was guys crying. They met these two professors crying mm-hmm. in the woods yeah. uh, about Sir John Gielgud's yeah. performance in something or other, yeah. and they hadn't noticed that the two boys were totally naked. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, but I think they were just running. Yeah, um, you know the British theatre back then was. It was basically a major self an actor by theatre. Like the big thing was when Daniel Day and, you know, Brannan and all them were coming up was who's going to be the next Laurence Olivier, mm. you know? It wasn't who's going to be the next Brando or, you know. Yeah, the theatre was, theatre was the... Theatre was everything, yeah. yeah. Let's have a listen to it because it was through theatre that he met Shan Phillips, who's yeah. a huge part of this documentary. And some, yeah. you, in fact, you could say she kind of is our guide through it and yeah. guide through his life. Um, here, she, here, here she is talking about how, how they met. Yeah. There he was with a few friends and I was with friends. They knew each other and they introduced us. And he looked to me like that character in Pinocchio, you know, that the, the, was it a wolf or a... There was a man who led the children astray. I haven't seen the film for a very long time. And um, he looked like that to me, kind of wolf-like creature in a green jacket and um, curly hair. And um, we were introduced and uh, we passed a few pleasantries and off I went back to a student and uh, to be a student and he went off to Bristol Ovick and... And I thought, as I was walking back, I thought, well, I'll marry him one day, I suppose. And I thought no more about it. I didn't meet him again for three years. And we did, in fact, marry in five years' time. 
I just remember my grandmother, um, Mam Gee, she lived in South Wales most of her life. And she said, she said when my parents were getting married, she said she did have reservations because she'd seen, you know, she said, oh, the marriages between the Irish and the Welsh. It's like oil and water. They never mix. And that's Kate O'Toole, uh, Peter O'Toole's daughter, yeah. at the end of that clip, Shan Phillips' former wife, yeah. at, at the beginning of the clip there. We're, we're speaking about the new documentary on Peter O'Toole, directed by Jim Sheridan, who's with me in, in studio this evening. But I was saying as we were listening to that, Jim, Clearly the love between Sean Phillips and Peter O'Toole, mm-hmm. you know, the marriage ended. Yeah. But the love didn't end in a peculiar yeah, way. She's yeah. so dignified in the way she speaks about him right throughout the film. And she is, yeah. Yeah, She's she really respected him and was always kind of faithful to him in that way, you know. Um, Kate there is very funny as well. And I was doing a show with Kate in the Irish Arts Centre and... Uh, the hostage and O'Toole came to it one night and the guy who was playing the uh, I'm a secret policeman and I don't care who knows it it's probably the only line he has but uh, O'Toole played that part on in this little theatre off you know on 51st mm. Street and of course the audience went mad you know Peter O'Toole coming in uh, and then I, I remember he, I went with him to see Kate. I directed Kate in another show with uh, the great Stephen Ray in, and it was on in the theatre in London and um, the Royal Court and I went with Peter to it and I was very friendly with him all the time, you know. Mm. I, I knew him quite a lot and I'd met him a good few times. He's a bit of a recluse down in Galway um, but he was wonderfully charismatic and very entertaining. The the other thing that comes across, I, I played the clip at the beginning about where he talks about having to get rid of his ghastly Irish accent, yeah. and his yeah. ghastly Yorkshire accent. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, the film starts with a clip of him saying, "I was born in Ireland and I moved to Yorkshire." Yeah, yeah. How do you define his Irishness, and how how much a part of him is that? Oh, I think he was. He wanted to be Irish. You know, I mean, uh, he loved Ireland. He was. He was really conscious of always portraying himself as an Irishman. Mm. I actually think he was born in Leeds, but, you know. Yeah, I think Kate says that. Yeah. Along Kate with yeah. says that. He was born in Leeds. That's what the record shows. Yeah. But, you know, he so wanted to be Irish and he lived in Clifton, you know. And you go to the hotel there, they still remember mm. the mad nights he had, you know. And I remember going out with him in Clifton and he was, he'd go to that, you know, pony fair and everything. He was, he just loved being in Ireland yeah, and he loved that Irish stuff. And I think it separated him from everybody else in England, you know. Let's have a listen to another clip featuring again Sean Phillips. But Brian Cox is at the end of this and, and yeah. they're talking about Lawrence of Arabia. And David Lean had this reputation yeah. of he, he wanted to break an actor down yeah. before he built the actor yeah. back up. Um, we'll mm-hmm. hear what Sean Phillips has to say and then what Brian Cox has to say about a bit of language in Brian Cox's uh, description of what was going on. They started first thing in the morning, 127 degrees, no shade. O'Toole in khaki up to there with a hat and everything. And he would sing the song and ride along very slowly until he was out of shot. And um, David just said, mm, I have another one. And they did it all day. 
the, the crew were dropping because there was no shade. It was intolerably hot. I was miles away on a, sitting on a box watching in horror, you know, at this. And I realized this was the day that, that Lean was going to break Peter down and he was going to uh, build him up again. And I looked and I thought, this is never going to happen. He's not going to break down. <laughs> He's not going to do it. So, and he didn't. Lean wouldn't break him down because he wouldn't put up with that English bollocks. That's what, you know, his Celtic soul would not put up with that English imperialism. I guess maybe Brian Cox hits it there, Jim Sheridan, when he talks about his Celtic soul. Yeah, Brian is very Celtic, you know. Mm. He's also a guy who wants to be Irish. Like, you know, I, I worked with him in a, mm. The Boxer, you know. Great actor and a great person to have on a, on a set and fantastic in succession. But yeah, I think... Like all that stuff about breaking an actor down and I, it does my head in, you know. It's like, I don't know why you do it. It's kind of like a false yeah. way of working, I think. Uh, I'm not sure Lean was so much like that. Um, but just, what, to, just to finish that, because it, it, the Lawrence mm, of Arabia is a mm, big section and it's yeah. a huge part of, yeah. obviously, of O'Toole's career shot him into stardom, even though he was paid, you know, yeah. re relatively little mm. for it. How good was he in that? How good an actor was he ultimately for you, Jim? He was totally amazing in that. Like, he just burned into the screen in it. I mean, I remember seeing it in the Fairview Cinema when I was about 13 or 14 and it had a huge effect on me. Uh, I watched it recently, of course, and it's much more, it's it's so meandering as a movie. And they keep saying Aqaba, and there's no picture of Aqaba. There's no map of Aqaba. Nobody knows where Aqaba <laughs> is, but we have to go to Aqaba. And it's like, okay, I get it. But it's just an illustration that in a movie, you only need a destination, an agenda, and everybody will relax. Yeah, you, know? you don't necessarily you, have to get there. No, and you don't have to tell them where it is or do anything. Yeah. Just make it interesting, make yeah. the journey interesting. Well, listen, the film the film is fascinating. It's really uh, interesting yeah. insight into Thank Peter you. O'Toole. And thanks for, for coming in to talk and to us. And it's on the Dublin yeah, I give all the details. Film yeah, Festival. Have, it, have it all of those details. I won't expect you to have the dates and times, uh, Jim. Uh, uh, Peter O'Toole along the Skyro Takaba, Dublin International Film Festival, 23rd of February to March the 4th. The premiere at the Dublin International Film Festival on February the 25th, 3.30pm at the Lighthouse Cinema. Limited release then in movies at Dundrum, Swords and Tala on March the 10th and Sky Arts on March the 14th. But to find out full details of that and everything else happening at the festival, diff.ie. Well, of course, we're not going to let Valentine's Day pass without a look at how romance and passion are portrayed in the arts. If you want intense love, great romance, blinding passion in art, where better to look than the operatic stage for that emotional and musical experience? Or if the mood takes you in the myriad volumes of poetry dedicated to the subject. Joining me this evening uh, to help me do just that on Valentine's Night, Enda Wiley, who has picked out some of her favourite love poems and from her Cork studio, Soprano Majella who has performed many of the most celebrated roles in romantic opera and she'll take us through some of her favourite operatic romances and tell us that, believe it or not, not all great operatic romances end in tragedy. I thought they had to end in tragedy or it wasn't an opera. However, we'll come back to that. Uh, we'll start with you, Enda, and your first choice where you're bringing us back to the 17th century. 
That's right. Hello, Sean. How are you? I'm feeling very romantic listening to you there. <laughs> yeah. And happy Valentine's Day. Well, I'm bringing everyone back to the 17th century to a cleric, no less, called Robert Herrick. And this is passionate stuff from A Man of the Cloth. Um, it's about him observing the radiance of his beloved. And it's extraordinary to think that she's still very much alive, even in the 21st century, when we hear these six lines of brilliance. So would you like me to read them for you, Sean? Do, please. Yeah. Okay. So it's Upon Julia's Clothes by Robert Herrick, written in 1648. When as in silks my Julia goes, then then methinks how sweetly flows that liquefaction of her clothes. Next, when I cast mine eyes and see that brave vibration each way free. Oh, how that glittering taketh me. Oh wow! So there you go, Sean. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit better great, than I like your yeah, a bit better than I like your dress, isn't it? <laughs> the yeah, liquefaction of her clothes, wonderful it's stuff indeed. Yeah, it really, it really has that that high romance involved in it. And Magella, we wouldn't be that far off with Monte in terms of period, at anyway, with Monteverdi and your first choice. Although the story that Monteverdi is telling here is a much more ancient story, but your love is as old as the hills. Hello, Sean. Oh, hello, Magella. What a brilliant <laughs> greeting. I won't I won't greet you back in baritone. No, it, no, I, no, I, don't. I embarrass myself. Happy St. Valentine's Day. And to you. Yeah, well, I mean, Monteverdi was sort of the linchpin from uh, the Renaissance medieval music to what we would term more uh, things that we connect more as opera. Um, and uh, so that was kind of the connection to the Baroque mm. um, era. But um, and so then it's been romance all the way for the last 400 years. <laughs> right. What is ha- who is who is romancing whom in the coronation of, of, of Pompeia? Well, you see, you've caught me out there now, Sean, because I haven't. I am. I. I've. I. I picked this piece of music because I. Mm, I love, love listening to it, and I think it's so pretty. But I never sang that opera, <laughs> and so I know Papea is in there, and yeah. uh, so she's being romanced. Okay, well, I'll tell you, Papea's fiance Drusilla is in love with Otho and Octavia, Nero's wife. So that's all we need to know about opera. One fella is in love with about two or three women, all of whom are in love with different fellas who are in love with different women. They all are in love with the wrong people. That's what's going on. It's opera, the, Sean. Yeah, it's opera. Exactly that. Mm. However, it doesn't matter who you're saying this to, um, whether it's it has to be to the woman you adore. I adore you. I embrace you. I desire you. I enchain you. No more grieving. No more sorrow. Oh, my dearest. Oh, my beloved. This is what it sounds like when Monteverdi sets it to music. From Monteverdi's The Coronation of Papea, eh, we heard Nuria Rial, the Spanish soprano, and Philippe Jorowski, French countertenor, in that uh, duet from the opera. I suppose, Magella, you don't need to know the exact words of what they're saying or what the char- uh, who oh, the characters it just are. sounds just... glorious. I wonder for you when you're singing it, uh, I know you've said you didn't sing this particular opera, uh, Magella, mm-hmm. but in, in general terms, you know, the, the kind of emotion that is often expressed in music, 
how much do you have to keep that under control when you're actually singing those roles, those big romantic roles? Well, the whole idea is that you put the work in, you do all the grunt work so that and you'd have weeks of rehearsals so that by the time you'd actually get to performing the music, um, you it's 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 wonderful. I mean, what you, you can go into a space where you're just channeling these emotions. Mm. I mean, that's the ideal scenario. I mean, quite more often than not, you're trying not to fall over your frock or or mm. um, something. Um, uh, somebody's uh, uh, talking in the audience or something's going on uh, to disturb you. But um, but yeah, it it is the most extraordinary feeling if you can just immerse yourself in the emotion. And I, I mean, opera is is so extraordinary yeah. in that it enhances everything. So all the power and all the drama of of love, all those big themes of love and hate, is I mean, opera is it's it's yeah. meat, it's meat and potatoes for yeah, opera. Absolutely, I suppose love and hate are two sides mm. of the same coin in many ways. Let's move on to a second poem from you uh, at this stage, Andrew Wiley. Um, you're going to John Montague for your second choice. I am indeed. And just listening to Magella there, I think certainly John Montague in this poem, he's channeling a huge emotion here because in great love poems, the person isn't actually there. You're waiting for them. So there's an ache, a longing, an anticipation. And that's what's happening with John Montague in this poem. He actually wrote it in 1965, but it's timeless. It's of its time, but it's timeless. He's waiting on a train station, on, in a train station on a platform in America. And he's there in the rain. It's very romantic. He's waiting and waiting and desperate to have her train come in and see her again. And then suddenly she arrives. And I think it was um, John Kerry who said about John Montague that his poems go straight to the heart and they catch in the memory like burrs, which is a lovely description. Mm. And when you hear this last part of the poem now, you'll get that feeling. So he's standing on the platform and her train comes in and he says... You had been travelling for days with an old lady who marked a neat circle on the glass with her glove to watch us move into the wet darkness, kissing, still unable to speak. And that's the poem, All Legendary Obstacles. Oh, I think it's one of the the most beautiful love poems. Um, And I have it actually hanging over my desk as I'm talking to you now, Sean. I love it so much. So uh, would you, can you use, when you're writing, can you use, can you, you know, take the eye off your own work and and look at other work in the the way that you're referring to? I mean, to look up at All Legendary Obstacles by John Montague, if I read the full of that, I'd be distracted for the whole day. (laughs) <laughs> no, I think it's a brilliant idea to read a poem, especially a poem as powerful as that. It kind of inspires you, you know. So so I think if you want to write a love poem, it's a great mm. thing to read love poems by other people and, you know, to, to get to get that feeling of passion and longing and then get the pen out and start scribbling. Yeah. So no, I, I use them as inspiration, you know, yeah. really. Um, uh, Magella, in, in terms of the poem that uh, Andrew just gave us, <clears throat> excuse me, we, we're waiting around, are they... The writer is waiting a long time for his lover to appear. In the case of La Boheme, the minute Mimi and Rodolfo set eyes on each other, badumf, that's it, isn't it? Yeah, sorry, I got distracted there because Enda reads poetry so beautifully <laughs> that I got carried <laughs> away with her voice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so we're back into Boheme. Uh, yeah, I am. Um, uh, uh, what was the question, Sean? Yeah, I was Honestly. saying it, they, 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 it's first love at first sight for the two of them. Yes, 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 yes. The, um, this, um, if you're going to play this duet or Suave Fanchile, yeah, then, then um, uh, Rud- M- Mimi has um, uh, um, come across. A, he, she's knocked on Rodolfo's door, and they're there. Uh, so it's, it is the, it, the 
is is their first meeting and it is it, it is that it's a beautiful portrayal of love at first sight and he's trying to keep her in the room so she ostensibly has lost her key and he pretend he's found it but he's pretending that he hasn't found it and and so this uh, they agree, she's mm. agreed that she'll go out with him to Cafe Mamoose oh, yeah. so they sing this amazing it just builds and builds and builds this, this duet right. um, as they express their, their yeah this newfound love that right. they've just well, come across Let's have a listen to Luciano Pavarotti and Marella Freni then uh, uh, that are, are, are expressing their love and he hiding the key in his back pocket reminds me of how I asked for the cup of tea this morning um, on Valentine's Day. <laughs> from Fanciula rather from Puccini's Lab OM. Uh, poem number three. Are we on at this? Yes, we are. Poem number three from you, Enda. Yeah, well, um, you know, we were talking about writing um, love poems earlier um, and I think it's it's great to read love poems and an anthology I've been flicking through is Romance Options. It's a new anthology of Irish love poems and it com- comes out from Daedalus Press and it's edited by Leanne Quinn and Joseph Woods. If anyone wants to go in search of love poems after this, if they're feeling the romance. This poem that I really love is by Catherine Phil McCarthy and it's called Summertime. And she's walking through a meadow and she comes to the house and she goes in and she sees the person she loves. And I just think it's perfectly pitched. There's a lovely stillness to this, um, an intimacy to it, I suppose, which which is lovely. So I'll just read you the, the last bit of it, John. It's called Summertime by Catherine Phil McCarthy. And it goes, there's an unmade bed, a white sheet twisted over blue that we unravel together. How warm his skin, despite cool linen and the French windows open all afternoon, bringing stray voices, even a curlew's call to the stillness of our room. Lovely summertime from Catherine Phil McCarthy. I'm going to give 30 seconds of of opera just to finish us up, if we could, Magella. Do you want Don Pascale or or do you want um, Wagner, Tristan and Isolde? I am. Um, let's 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 have Wagner. Let's go out big, Sean. Yeah, we got big. Tristan and Isolde. What more do you need to know than it's a doomed love affair and it's Wagner? That'll get us go. That'll get us going on Valentine's <laughs> night. Here we go, Tristan and Isolde to finish up. Doesn't get much bigger than Wagner, does it? Soprano Deborah Voigt there, tenor Placido Domingo with Antonio Papano conducting the orchestra of the Royal Opera House Covent Garden in that uh, little section of Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. I know you're saying, what about Madame Butterfly? We're going to talk about that tomorrow night on the programme Lyric Opera. So join us for that. In the meantime, thanks to Enda Wiley and Majella Culler for sharing their romantic thoughts with us on this Valentine's night. 
If the names Jessica and Max, Amber and Greg, or Paige and Finn are familiar to you, then you are probably aware that Love Island 2023 has just started and already placing bets on who the winning couple is going to be. It's the mad and glamorous world of dating programmes such as Love Island and reality TV in general that is the subject of a new dance show called Usual Programming, showing as part of The Seen and Heard, a festival of new work by emerging artists. It was choreographed by Nora Fay and it's performed by Soraka Murphy. They're joining Joining me now on the line from Holland, where they are both in their final year at the Dance Academy in, in Tilburg. Nora, um, let's start with the, the world of reality TV and uh, in general and dating shows in particular. What interested you in this particular thing, or this particular area of entertainment? Are you a fan? I'm a huge fan. I'm an addict just like everyone else. It's, just, uh, it's so um, trendy at the moment in that way. But I'm also loving kind of the the narratives and the intentions behind the whole thing as to why everyone goes on it, what the consequences are. Kind of everyone goes on to do this kind of big, vulnerable, genuine thing like falling in love, but it's so you're so exposed and it's the desperation, the panic of trying to do it. So through this piece, you kind of go through all these different layers of entering the show, kind of trying to sell yourself, trying to find this love, but also where you're kind of turning into a brand and kind of trying to appeal to consumers and the viewers in that way. So we play a lot mm. with the dynamic between the audience and the contestants as well. And and I, kind of how they're going to navigate this mad world. And, yeah. and when I see a, a title like Usual programming, Nora, I, I get the sense that there's a little bit of irony in there as well and you are touching on some of the, I suppose, less savoury sides of, of things as well when you talk about the different aspects of the dynamic in these programmes. Yeah, yeah, that's it, exactly. It's cause we're so aware this kind of genre of television is becoming so saturated and we're kind of just churning out these kind of celebrities and formats constantly now. So we kind of play with this kind of mad jokey side of it as well, of kind of this showy um, kind of silliness to it and then definitely kind of delve into those more kind of somber or darker layers to it as well. So it's a real mixture of kind of, we'll make you laugh, make you cry and you go in a kind of the classic roller coaster journey of emotions they always say on these yeah. shows. Well, Sarika Murphy is alongside you there as as well. Uh, Sarika, you play a contestant called Destiny and the male dancer plays a character called Liam. I think we know who the more colourful of the two characters is by those names. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it was a really fun process to kind of come up with these characters um, and they kind of, they've kind of become a caricature of uh, kind of usual contestants on, on these sorts of shows and they're kind of an amalgamation of all of our favourite parts, like all the kind of silly, like ridiculous parts of these um, characters that you would mm. see. Um but yeah, we love Destiny. We love her. <laughs> give me give me a sense of some of the, with a name like Destiny, she has to go through all sorts of emotions and she has to have some wonderful outcomes, I, w- I would have thought. Give us a sense of, uh, part of part of what's happening to her as the show usual programming goes on. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she comes on as this sort of, she really wants to sell herself. She really wants to show the audience who she is and she wants to impress kind of the Liam who she's interested in. Um, but you can also see throughout the performance that she she becomes a bit of a, a bit aware of that she's being watched and that she she's really performing for these people. She's really trying to sell a certain version of herself. What about Liam then, um, uh, Sorica? Uh, or, well, let me go to Nora on the, on the Liam side of things. He sounds just even by that name like a good solid fella that you know a mother would be <laughs> glad to see her daughter coming home with a fella like Liam. 
he, he's a real lads lad. He's like a, oh. like a complete um, hyper masculinity. All those stereotypes, like the gym, the skinny jeans, the kind of white trainers. He's the complete kind of Love Island guy look going on. And um, so kind of had fun playing with those kind of stereotypes and kind of showing this kind of warped reality that these shows create. And um, so it's a mixture of kind of laughing or questioning them as well through these characters and kind of seeing how these personalities evolve and what they what they're aware of and what they're not aware of throughout it. Yeah, so it obviously the show sounds like like a lot of fun. Just tell me it, it's a mixed medium piece. Maybe you'd explain the the various different ways of telling story that you're using in the production, Nora. Yeah, exactly. So I'm primarily a choreographer and kind of using dance as my main kind of language, but I always love to infuse as many different elements to kind of create these theatrical explosions on stage. So it's a mixture of kind of core contemporary dance, but also kind of influence of physical theatre, which is like the bridge between dance and theatre, kind of very gestural kind of movement and kind of very easy and readable. So even if you've never seen a dance show before, you'll be able to kind of enjoy it and kind of get the narrative of it. And we use kind of texts and interviews and different formats and kind of um, ways that these shows present the characters. So it's kind of, it's all going on. It's, it's a real explosion of TV and theatre and dance all at once. And as I say, I mean, clearly we get a sense that there's a lot of fun to be had in the show, but how serious a, how serious a critique of reality television and shows like Love Island are you making in, in usual programming? Yeah, I think we want it to be a real mixture of both because it can be, these shows can be this kind of world of escapism and kind of nonsense and trashy TV that people just love to switch off to and that can be kind of fun and addictive to get into. So there are for sure those elements of kind of just pure fun and nonsense to it. But then we definitely kind of tap into that more sombre layer that's kind of treading and guiding the, the programs with it as to kind of how the people are dealing with themselves mm. and kind of so exposed and vulnerable on it. So it's definitely kind of touching on both layers there. And I guess that's important from, from your side of things as well, Soraka, that the character of Destiny, yes, I, I keep picking on the name as kind of telling us one side of the story. Is it easy to dismiss these these characters that, that we see in, the, in reality TV programmes as caricatures, as just types, that they're not real people at all? Was it important for you to kind of find the reality behind Destiny? Absolutely. And also to kind of find the, the humanity in here as well, because I mean, as as much as we can watch these shows and kind of have a laugh at what's going on, I mean, they're all people at the end of the day. And especially you can really see in the piece that, like Nora said, it is a bit of a roller coaster, but you can at a certain point see that she really is human. And there's a real human aspect to it as well. And not just this performative putting on yeah. this sort of... Um, face um, but yeah no it, it you can really see that in the performance I feel all right. Well, listen. Um, best of luck to both of you in the the upcoming performance. That's uh, Soraka and uh, Soraka Murphy and Nora Fay joining me there from the Netherlands. And usual program will show for the very first time in Ireland in Smock Alley. That's on the twenty first and twenty second of February as part of the Seen and Heard Festival. And full details on that can be found on seenandheard.ie. 
We know from the groundbreaking work of the theatre group Broken Talkers that they are pretty fearless when it comes to exploring difficult subjects. If their new work Manifest Broken, uh, in their new work rather, Manifest, Broken Talkers explore the current state of masculinity through the format of Men's Workshop, written and directed by co-artistic directors Gary Keegan and Phelan Conlon. And uh, I'm delighted that it is uh, Phelan who's joining me in studio this evening, who also plays the role of the workshop coordinator in Manifest. Maybe we, we should talk about this, um, first of all, the, the fact that this is a workshop that you're, you're giving us here. It's part of a bigger project, in fact, this, this show, Phelan. It is indeed. Um, so Manifest, which will open next week, isn't it? Next week, God. Um, yeah, it's part of a wider project called What Does He Need? And What Does He Need is... It's a project that looks at how men and boys are shaped by and influenced the world they live in. And it's a collaboration between uh, Broken Talkers, which is myself and Gary Keegan, and Fiona Whelan, artist-writer Fiona Whelan, and Rialto Youth Project, uh, particularly Danielle, Danielle McKenna. And if I go back a little bit in history, just to yeah. give you a bit of a context. So Gary and I were invited in to uh, assist uh, Fiona on a project called Natural History of Hope back in around 2015, 2016. And Gary and I were very late into this project. We, we come in to uh, assist Fiona in staging the piece. And Fiona had been working with Danielle and Rialto U Project and a lot of women from the area over a long, long period. And Fiona, in collaboration with the women, had been kind of swapping stories and telling stories about their lived experiences. And one of the was topics or themes that, that popped up quite a lot in the conversations with uh, Fiona and the women was this idea, particularly for the for the mothers in the group, of their, I suppose, their anxiousness or their fear for their sons, for their young, beautiful boys, the fear of the influence of other men on these young boys, and I suppose the, the fear or, or the hope that they would have good male role models in their life. And this is something that kind of stuck with Gary and I and Fiona. And we really felt that the, the next step in this project was to look at that. So Fiona had worked with the women for a long, long time. And then it meant that Gary, myself, Fiona, Danielle, and the people at Rialto U Project could have kind of looked at this project as a new project and looking at masculinity, looking at it as what mm. it means to be a man. So that, I suppose that's a general history. There's lots of strands of, of what course, does he need. Yeah. You can get all the information on whatdoesheneed.com. But just to say that one of the aspects of the project of what does he need is a dialogical workshop. What do you mean by a dialogical workshop? Well, we get a group of people together. They listen to an audio recording which follows the, the, the life of a boy from, from birth to early adulthood. Along this journey, he is faced with dilemmas and situations that face all young men. And after each incident or dilemma, the group discuss and talk about what they just heard. So it's, not, it, it's creating a space mm. for people to have a conversation about masculinity and what it means to be a man. So we've conducted lots of these workshops since 2016 to 20... Yeah, from, yeah, 2017, 2018. And we're kind of sitting on all this amazing, interesting material over the last few years. And it felt for Gary and I, the next strand, along with Fiona, the next strand of this project would be to, I suppose, give a theatrical voice right. 
to these to these words. So in some ways, what we're getting it's it, it's a kind of a staged workshop where you, you you've decided ahead of time where, what aspects of the stories are going to be told. Exactly. You're you're the workshop coordinator mm-hmm. per se. We'll come back to his role sure. and how much of that is a performance and much of it is an actual reality. But tell me about the those who the the, the four young men who are actually involved. If you like, they're the characters in the workshop, aren't sure. they? Yeah, we're very lucky. I mean, when we decided to, to I suppose, make a theatrical uh, version of the workshop, we were very keen to keep involved the men that had taken part in the workshop. In the original workshops. In the original workshops. And also some of the men who'd gone on to actually uh, work <clears throat> in the project as artists uh, working in, in local communities in Dublin 7 and Dublin 8. And we're very lucky that Dara Clear... Uh, is involved. Uh, Dara's been involved as an artist, as a work, workshop participant. Uh, Toby uh, Balogun is also... Let, 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 if we can, uh, sure. without labelling who yes. or what each person is, but Dara, uh, maybe give us a context of, of, in terms of being a man. What roles is he playing in his ordinary sure. life? Yeah, well, uh, well, Dara, I mean, I've known Dara a long time and he, he's been he's been a man I've looked up to for for 20 years. He's just been a really solid, good friend to me. Um, he's been a really good influence on me um, when I've needed him. And he was one of the first people I, th- I thought about mm. when we were looking for artists to come in involved in his project. He also has a podcast called The Clear Out and he speaks very honestly, very articulately about what he feels it means to be a man and he's constantly questioning that himself. So again, idea, I, I mean, ideology-wise, he, he's... He's probably the oldest in in the in the in the group, but he's in a good place. Where yeah. the youngest, which is Ben Sullivan, and we know Ben since he was fourteen. He's now twenty two. He was in a piece of ours called It Falls, which was a collaboration with Junk Ensemble a long time mm. ago. And Ben is the youngest in the cast. And Ben genuinely is uh, searching, looking yeah. for answers currently as a young man. So he he's been influenced by, or he's certainly checked out what's been online. He's, you know, he's trying to talk to his friends. So he's he's in a different place where Dara is. So there's a yeah, real so mix. Dara, Dara is a father. He's a husband. Yes, exactly. And he, he, he was a son, obviously. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. One, yeah. of four, one of four sons, yes. in fact. Uh, then you have Ben, this 22-year-old man, as you say, maybe kind of setting out on that road. And then we have Toby and Timmy. Who are Toby and Timmy? So Toby, uh, Toby again, is, is an amazing... Uh, Young man, he he. I think yeah, he he's slightly older than Ben, but but Toby has been looking at masculinity for quite a long time. He's a hip hop, and he's a hip hop dancer and artist, and he's been looking at um, looking through the prism of masculinity through young black uh, African Irish men. So he's a very particular lens that he's looking through, and it was important to have that diversity for us in the mm. piece. And uh, Timmy, who isn't in the piece now, but um, Fionn uh, Fionn has come in to replace the original cast member who was Noah and Noah um, unfortunately had to, to pull out the performance due to an injury and uh, though Fiona stepped in I'm very happy to have Fiona yeah. you really do miss Noah so it's a real diverse mix of people on stage coming from different backgrounds and coming from different I suppose different areas in their I suppose their journey of what it is to be a man but essentially though that quartet yes. were, were getting their real life stories as it were then there's a fictional character brought into the mix just explain what that is and what sure. that opens up in terms of the performance yeah well just a, a little bit of context so it's a lot of the text is based on the research and scripts that we have taken from the workshops we've taken over the years but alongside that is the lived experience and, and reality of the men in, in the piece. So 
I play the facilitator and the, the reason why it's me on stage is because I, I was the facilitator or one of the facilitators in the workshops that Gary and I and Fiona and Danielle conducted. So it's a, it's a real thing. I, I was the facilitator. But not to give too much away, mm. um, I have an agenda. There's an, there's an agenda by the facilitator that's not quite obvious at the beginning, but things start to kind of shift and start to crack throughout the piece. And I suppose his, his real... His real agenda starts to kind of take shape towards the at the end of the piece. So this isn't the way you would normally conduct a workshop. This is it, God it, no. <laughs> this is a kind of he's a provocateur. Is he? Would, would that be a, a fair way to describe? Him? Yes, I, I, he he becomes problematic. He becomes problematic. Absolutely. So, um, bringing these men together to talk about what it means to be a man, which seems like a very healthy, mm. important thing to do, and a lot of you know all all men should do their best to do that. Bringing these men together, which looked like a healthy idea, just seems to be a little bit poisonous towards the end. Yeah, so and that's that's down to this this character that you play. It, there's another. Are they are they discussing the dilemmas or the situation with a fictional character as well? Is that's kind of the what's what's holding the piece together in exactly, some ways? Exactly. Yeah, like the actual workshop that we did, it, you, we invite men in to discuss the life of a fictional character, a mm. boy that they create and and they and they guide through through his life. But at a certain stage, again, I don't want to give too much away, yeah. but at a certain stage in the piece, um, one of the men becomes the subject. He becomes the boy in the story. So the, it, it, so it starts off as this kind of fictional character and as the piece kind of moves on, for, he, he morphs into this, into the subject and the men then funnel everything through this character. I was interested, you know, then you were sitting here listening as uh, Nora and Surika were talking to mm-hmm. us there. I mean, you know, obviously we were having a laugh at the reality show type of format and all of that type of thing. But there was that telling phrase that Liam, the character in mm-hmm. their play, was a lad's lad. Talk to me a little bit about how this, your show then, Manifest, starts to look at what being a lad's lad, for example, means and what the type of pressures are on young men to behave in certain, in a certain fashion. Well, one of the things that, that, again, and this is only something that I really only became privy to just before Christmas, the, the influence that certain people online have with young men. Um, and there's, there's a few people online that, I mean, I, I, I was researching for the show and I, just, I found them as buffoons, absolute fools. And I kind of laughed them off. But there's a real danger in that because these men have huge influence on younger men mm-hmm. and their views on mental health. I mean, some of, these, some of these online influencers say that, you know, depression isn't real. And they're convincing young men that all you have to do is to go to the gym, clean your room, work out. And then also filling their, filling their young minds with hateful ideology around women and women's roles. So that influence, that outside influence, is it, it's really prevalent because it's about status. It's about looking good, having a nice car, having money. So all the things that most people strive for, but it's, it's undercut with this really ugliness. Um, and it, speaking again to, to Ben, the, the young performer in, in our show, his experience is that this, it, it's just so hard to and so difficult to get away from this. Once you get into any sort of a click hole with, with this, it's very hard to, as a young man, if you're, if you're in a place where you're, you're vulnerable and you don't, quite, you don't have those important male role models in your life, where do you go to? 
or you go to the guy online who looks at you right in your eye on a screen and tells, and you, tells you all these things to do. So I think one of the things that happens in the show then is that they, the, the four men that are the real men that are sitting there in front of you, they're, they're dealing with certain scenarios. For example, they're, they're trying to have a debate around how do you cope with a fight in the schoolyard? So what kind of th- what kind of ideas start to manifest, which is the title of the show, start to manifest there? Well, it, that's pretty much verbatim. The, the script is pretty much verbatim from a couple of workshops that we did a couple of years ago, where um, uh, it was it was it was it was male groups that we were working with, and just the complexity around, you know, should should the young boy tell a teacher he's being bullied, or should he or should he fight after school? And, you know, there, there's there's rational answers to both those things. Yeah. Because, you know, if he doesn't fight, he becomes vulnerable. He'll be picked on even more. If he does fight, is that setting him down the road to, to, to more violence? So it's a very complex, very, very complex situation for the young man. And I think the, the whole piece raises these really kind of complex questions. Hard to answer. All right. And and the, the, the other thing that's in there, this imaginary child that you're talking about during the workshop, uh, we, we get into more mature kind of discussions here. He gets his first kiss. Social media is a big thing that's in there. And then these mixed messages around sex and, and intimacy. What does what kind of effect does the online world have on that? Well, again, I was just so kind of shocked to hear. I mean, I, I don't have I don't have a, a son, but I have a nephew and I spoke to my brother about this who is my, obviously my nephew's father. And it seems now that once a child can get their hands on a phone, porn is very easily accessed. Mm. And the difference between, you know, when I was young to the young men, to, to young men now is that they have access to this material at such an early age, which begs the question that then should parents, should role models speak to their children about porn a lot earlier than they probably thought they ever would have. So they're the kind of debates about do you speak to your child at a younger age about this? How do you speak to your child about this? So these are the, these are the kind of questions and themes that the men discuss within the workshop. Who do you want to attend this? I mean, do we attend this as a type of entertainment or do we attend this as a type of, in some ways, therapy? Um, I want men to come see it. Uh, I want everybody to come see it, but I <laughs> really, really want men to come see this. Um, like... The workshop itself, I mean, the great thing about the theatre medium is about it's, it's about a shared experience, it's a shared room. And I think the piece, the piece hasn't got the answers. The piece has the questions. And I think what Gary and I and Fiona and everybody attached to the What Does He Need project alongside the Manifest project is to create a space just for dialogue. It's to create a space where after the show, people can go and talk about these 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 things and uh, the things that have popped up. So it's really about creating a space for people to listen and then to somehow find an output to... Uh, to discuss what's what was said and what was heard, and I guess that that is as bit much a part as anything else is the after show discussion and the and the talks that will be had. Absolutely. Uh, thanks very much for coming into us on that one film and that uh, film telling us about manifest by broken talkers. It's at the Project Arts Centre from the twenty third of February through until the fourth of March. So you're you're nearly there at this stage, film, and that is our lot for this Tuesday evening. Leah Murphy and Amandine Passa-Devine were the researchers. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator. Ashton Grufferty was in sound this evening. And tonight's programme produced by Kay Sheehy. Back with you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.